0: This Dharma Talk was recorded at Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. So we continue our study, The Eightfold Path. Um, once again, I'm using a book titled The Eightfold Path, uh, edited by GKO Cheryl Wolfer, and it's um, each Part of the Eightfold Path has an essay by a different uh, woman's end teacher. This book, uh, well, I've got four, four of the authors signed my copy of the book. <laughs> this book came out in uh, 2016. Uh, but I'd like to uh, do an overview of the Eightfold Path. Uh, and so each part of the Eightfold Path uh, is connected to the other seven. So could be drawn, I think, as a circle. However, it tends to be listed in a certain traditional order, uh, starting with wise view, which is like wisdom. And one might think that, um, well, one, one interpretation would be the Buddhist teachings give us a wise view. But the main Buddhist teaching is to be in the present moment. Uh Uh-huh. Some people have said a wise view is no view, no fixed view, which also points to the present moment. I find that a little, maybe too clever to say (laughs) wise view is no view, but there's a valid point there. But from the, um, Grace Shearson, from her commentary, she says... Think of right view as right viewing. Finding right view is an activity we engage in or not. Engaging right view plunks us smack down in the center of our own living reality. We turn away from the thinking, feeling, imagining functions of our minds and toward our felt experience of the present moment. So, present moment, uh, you may have a lot of wisdom from experience and from Teachings, but first part is to know where you are, to know where your audience is and what's going on. Uh, so that's being in the present moment. Then we're here, um, and very naturally we we kind of know want to know what direction to paddle our boat in the middle of the ocean of being here. So that's uh, right intention. So our intention. be said to benefit all beings including ourselves and the author of that pointed out uh, loving kindness and compassion as practices for right intention and these first parts are together are kind of considered um wisdom the eightfold path is kind of broken into three practices so one is wisdom and next we get to what's considered the ethical practices of wise speech, which is very complex. But in all these areas we tend to be unconscious. Gosh, we, you know, we just start talking and <laughs> we they start talking on a combination of what other people around us, what they're talking about and our own proclivity. Uh, some people might not have a proclivity to talk very much and then that's it's good in a way, but it's also like they don't have much practice. <laughs> they haven't made as many mistakes, so their speech is not be as skillful. Um, and then wise action, so everything we do is an action, and everything uh, has an effect, and doing nothing is an action. <laughs> so these practices are continuous, um, speech, too. We're always thinking, you know, preparing our descriptions. So it's it's continuous practice. And the last of the three parts considered ethical, uh, wise livelihood. And this one might be kind of tricky. There's a lot of unconscious assumptions there, because it really ties into society. You could say all these are always tied into society, but wise livelihood uh, very much so. And we have the urgency of needing to provide food and shelter. Uh, pretty urgent. So that might um, play out in ways where we're not uh, fully conscious. i just say quickly, the last three, uh, wise effort, mindfulness, and samadhi, I call these um, quality of being. Uh, thought of calling them like our mental state but i don't like mental tends to ignore the body and state implies there's some correct way to be i just got quality of being you know quality of being's pretty overlooked uh, because we're so concerned with contents but contents come and go you know contents uh kind of a distraction from some actual more fruitful approach of paying attention to our quality of being. So traditionally you might say from wise understanding and wise ethics we can then develop um, a quality of being that it lead to um, samadhi, kind of a, a wonderful way to be, but I think I'd like to work this list in the other direction for a second because in Zen we're like just sit down and sit as it so we're kind of starting with the eighth one just sit down and um, your quality being comes up um, lots of other stuff come up, everything comes up um, so we kind of start there Um, Oh, I was going to say, I feel Zazen meditation, it's a little bit of a a trick where you're like, well, I want to do something, so I'm going to meditate. But there's um, a paradigm of there's doing and there's being. And humanity is like do, 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 and it's just kind of lost in its own Habitual, cultural, and it ignores just being. Just the joy of being alive, the quality of being alive, just being. So we, but we're we're good, we're good people. We want to do. We've been trained to want to do. So a little bit trickier. We tricked into, I'm going to do meditation. And then uh, being comes up, and we're like, wow, <laughs> oh, this is... Uh, is just being and then for being we're curious uh you know what's going on so that brings up mindfulness and as we do this practice well what kind of effort should i have i think i want i really want to get into this so i'm gonna make a strenuous effort uh well that's doesn't seem quite right if it's too strenuous <laughs> so i'm gonna have a laid back effort well if you're too laid back you're you don't have enough energy going on. And then, you know, from the quality of being, you. well, you have a view. What's going on in my life? Uh, what's going on in your life? Your livelihood, your actions, your speech. So you work with those. Uh, and then you realize your intention. And then finally, you bec- your wisdom blooms by being in the present moment. <laughs> In a very deep, I could even say noticeable way. So that way, wisdom's like the fruit of the practice. <laughs> okay, I just uh, thought I'd cover that. So I like to honor the author by reading some of her words. Um, I'm going to kind of do the last part of her essay and then might go back to the first part of her essay. Um, so she's talking about. Society today, she says, work often involves jobs that are increasingly at odds with Buddhist values of dignity, kindness, and respect, as well as our fundamental precept of causing no harm. So, in many ways, um, ecologically promoting a cultural paradigm that favors some and doesn't favor others, um, work is um, doesn't seem like the best uh, situation, I think, often. Uh, I'll just say, when I was young, I used to look at college catalogs and like, oh man, I want to study all these courses, but then I'd have to look at the one-ads and try to find a job. It's like, I don't want to do any of these jobs. <laughs> Some people maybe kind to stay in college. Okay. Um, in Buddha's time, right livelihood was defined generally as not making a living through harmful acts including killing, deception, or cheating others. Harmful occupations that were specifically prohibited in Buddhist time included trading in arms, trading in living beings, trading in flesh, in intoxicating drinks, or in poisons. Uh, military service and the work of hunter, fishermen, etc. are understood as also included in this list. The underlying meaning of right livelihood is to support oneself and one's family by honorable means that are in accord with precepts. And then we have the, uh, some people notice when we work, uh, a lot of our money goes to promoting a giant military complex that's got a lot of bombs and poisons, and his mission is to, uh, to kill, although, so I was interested in becoming like a, a park ranger, uh, but one part of a park ranger is, uh, you're not like a, just a naturalist, uh, they're often carrying a gun, and it's like, actually I can't carry a gun, <laughs> I can't can't do it. Uh, but other people can, probably to me. We can get into that a little bit. Uh, I have to admit, as much as I'm—okay, I want a bumper sticker that says repeal the Second Amendment, but that would, just, that would just promote too much anger. So I'm a little extreme. On the other hand, I, I kind of re- think if I'm Going to be attacked, I do call 911. And uh, anyhow, so we'll discover how ideals uh, can be a be a little hypocritical, and how complex our society is. In the Anjutara Nikaya, the Buddha is recorded as saying, "Wealth acquired by energetic striving, righteously gained, makes one happy, and properly maintains." one in happiness. The Buddha did not believe that wealth itself was an obstacle to awakening. Rather, he considered morally just acquisition of wealth or financial security to be a skillful source of happiness. However, wealth was not an end in itself. Its value lay in the uses to which it was put, including material gifts and gifts of time and attention. In the best of all possible worlds, the work of right livelihood would therefore contribute not only to our individual well-being but to the skillful means generosity and awareness of the needs of others to entire communities and global societies spreading the value of care kindness and dignity to the farthest corners of humanity so work um we're working with others and doing things that affect others and you know to the extent we make that a positive situation, is what the Buddha suggests, suggests we look at. I do have other quotes from the Buddha where he doesn't seem that uh, that wild about wealth, but um, other times he is. So he, Buddha didn't say everyone just be a, a monk with a robe and a ball. Buddha was like, no, this is society and kings should be kings and govern righteously and Merchants should be merchants and uh, handle that righteously. Um, he wasn't a naive, simplistic uh, teacher. Um, uh, one Zen teacher, well, he wrote a book called Right Livelihood, which I, no, I think he called it, well, it was about work as spiritual practice. Um, he says, Right Livelihood means conscious livelihood. In other words, regardless of our job, our lack of job, we should be aware of the implications and consequences of what we do, which is the same with right action and right speech. What are the implications and consequences? Now, another Zen teacher, um, so he's a little more realistic perhaps than I am about my uh, anti-military, anti-weapon stance. He says, um, the realities of the modern post-Nazi Holocaust world and post 9 11 world may mean that contemporary Buddhists must acknowledge the necessity for military forces to be used for genuine self-defense, to reduce terrorist attacks and hostile occupations, and as peacekeeping forces in situations where genocide or other major harm is being committed. Well, I deeply wish for complete nuclear disarmament. In the meantime, I'm very glad there is a meditation group at the Air Force Academy, and that our Air Force pilots have training in meditative calm. Uh, so, in Colorado Springs at the Air Force Academy, there was, and perhaps still is, a um, I think a Buddhist chaplain that teaches uh, mindfulness. It might actually be be required there. Um, So that's pretty good. Um, So, so the world is complicated. (laughs) Lots of things are matters of degree. Uh, And I'm pretty much, uh, you know, I really so I'm pretty much pacifist in the uh, manner of Gandhi. And, um, but when we look at something place like Ukraine, that's, um, it's not a very popular view. Um, Who knows? We really don't know, but I'm not going to stop wishing for a, pac- a pacifist world. Um, so she goes into s- several issues here, like um, so eating meat, you know, and we say, so indigenous cultures close to, very close to nature, ate, ate meat, uh, sometimes just grubs, grubs, I guess you can have a taste for raw grubs from from a decaying log if you're in the tropics, but of the Arctic, the uh, indigenous people it didn't have much except animal animals to eat, and they kind of needed needed that fat. So I, I don't go. Oh, he says Robert Aiken is purported to have said. The only difference between a cow and a vegetable is that a cow screams louder. I wasn't going to, I don't really go that far. I'm going to harvest some cabbages, and I, I'm i sorry, I'm just not worried about the cabbage having uh, the consciousness that a uh, mammal or even a fish does in terms of, uh, but maybe I'm... A little backward, but uh, vegetarians aren't aren't off the hook because, as I've mentioned before, in order to plow up a field, and they seem to need a lot. Of people think you need to spray it for weeds and spray it for bugs, and uh, growing plants takes its toll on animals, especially in terms of taking away their environment it's like you it's hard to be an animal if in the middle of a cornfield um or yeah or the, even a meadow uh it gets yeah so uh Dave and i drove across the midwest drove across iowa which is a lot of corn and soybeans and we talked a lot about the use of the land and you know to me it's just can't we just share <laughs> and, can't we do like 90% corn and 10% wildlife cover? I mean, can't we share the land? Anyhow, um, she brings up a, a way to make money called investing. Investing uh, does seem like gambling to me, and gambling, not a big fan of gambling. Oh, there was recently, so the state lotteries, um, it's an interesting article about this. They provide funds that are used for parks and nature, and like that's such a great thing. But there's a study who who's buying the lotteries? It's people that can ill afford. And they're like being marketed by states in neighborhoods of people of color, and they're being marketed in a way that exaggerates. As if they're like a for-profit, like they're exaggerating uh, your chances of winning. Uh, it's like this—this our government uh, kind of preying on uh, people that are more vulnerable to be preyed upon. So, but even the stock market is interesting. They say uh, after advertising an investment firm, they're like little stocks involve the risk of loss, you know, but it's just built into our society. Like, um, well, no, that's just what we do. And the people that get their cut of it, whether there's a win or a loss, they still get the cut of managing investments, and then when it's a loss, they go, oh, well, we blame the banking system, we blame the economy. Don't blame me for telling you. Anyhow, okay. It's crucial to remember that right livelihood does not exist in a vacuum, but must always be considered in the context of its relationship to the other seven limbs of the Eightfold Path. As part of the triad of ethical conduct, right livelihood clearly includes both right speech and right action, but it is equally important to observe it through the lens of right view. In a world that is increasingly abstract, technical, and lacking in human interaction and oversight, ethical decisions become increasingly abstract as well, often leading to a rationalizing mindset in which ends justify the means. When this happens, the truth appears flexible. Our ideas of right and wrong begin to depend more on our individual personal perspective which is often clouded by the three poisons of desire, aversion, and delusion, rather than on the universal view of benefiting all beings. So in the present moment, you can see this is causing harm, you know, this is not healthy, it's increasing divisions, it's alienating people, it's got ecological consequences, and of course, but uh, rationalizing. That's a, um, that's what, uh, humans do. You know, they build this, spin this web of, I'd say, quote-unquote logical reasons, which are often just speculation, uh, of this, this is the way we have to do things. And my response is one word with a question mark, uh, really? Really? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is that how we have to do things? And then the author says, um, perhaps part of right livelihood is reflected upon our choice of work by asking, what can I give, rather than what do I get? As interdependent beings, perhaps right livelihood is the way that we can intentionally provide for ourselves and our families while at the same time contributing to universal well-being and harmony. As Buddhist practitioners, our deepest intention is to benefit all beings while causing no harm. Well, I'm afraid I have to say less harm. (laughs) When we diligently apply this intention to our daily work in combination with our practice of the Eightfold Path and the Buddhist precepts, our work becomes spiritual practice and right livelihood very naturally appears. So, you know, our Sangha is really... The whole of society and work is just a wonderful, a wonderful way to engage with uh, with people. Uh, it's workplace is it can be the ground of our practice, and it's often hard to have right speech at the workplace. I used to um, really have trouble with leaders who. We're doing things differently than i thought they should do and i i looked at the, you know gossip deeply and it's like i'm scared you know this leader the company might is going to go out of business because of this leader's ineptitude in my opinion and other people's opinion <laughs> it's great when other people have the same opinion you do and uh so i ended up you know gossiping but you know but the which was a way to wake up to, to perhaps stopping gossiping, but it, in a way it was pretty understandable. It's like, we're, you know, our livelihoods are on the line here. Um, and it, um, and sometimes you can see the fruit of your practice through livelihood, um, through your coworkers. Um, so I had one, one boss in particular said, this was a while ago, and I think I might've improved. I'll start with this one. He's like, I used to be interested in Buddhism, but after meeting you, I'm not interested in it anymore. Uh, we didn't have a great relationship. But I had a better story, more recent. Uh, a co worker, she wrote up something about me that I brought a whole new level of peace. And harmony to this organization, like a level that, you know, they hadn't had before. So, so sometimes you're complimented, and sometimes you're insulted. <laughs> but work is a, a real place. Um, I mean, I do some things in society, like sit in a coffee shop and go to movies, but I'm not really—well, we always say our quality of our being is affecting the world, but it's not. It's better. It's good to be engaged, and so the, the red right lamp brings up money, which is, I mean, it's just astounding how different people are about uh, what they spend money on, uh, and it also brings up ideals. So you know, I have such a, I have such a simplistic, you know, I'm attracted to minimalism and then i'm just this incredible hypocrite because i'm i don't really practice minimalism in the the way i i would like to um so you know how life is really a call it's um, what are our ideals what direction do we want ourselves and society to go um versus what what's actually happening and what we're actually doing so that's why Waking up to wise action and wise livelihood is important. You've been listening to A Dharma Talk from Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. To learn more about us or to make a donation, visit us at prairiemountain.org.